welcome to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Edward Rudisell, sitting here as always with Arthur Black. Hello, and hey, I got a question. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? <laughs> uh, do we need to go through the whole uh, the whole verse? No, it just came to mind. That's it. Let's move along. We can get into the long Muppet conversation, but today we've got a very special guest, uh, Camper English, the famed cocktail writer, uh, frequent speaker, cocktail judge, and mad scientist, and operator and owner of academics.com. Yo. Yo. So, really great to have you here tonight, or today, whatever you want to call it. Whenever you're listening. Yeah, exactly. Whenever you're listening and whatever we're calling it from whatever time I woke up this morning. But uh, you're in Indianapolis at the moment, uh, promoting your new book. Um, I am. So this just came out. I've got a copy here in my hand. Uh, but although everybody that comes to the event tonight gets one. But um, before we get into that, we always start every episode off with the same question. Mm-hmm. What did you have to drink last night, Camper? <laughs> I had so so many different things to drink last night. Uh, <laughs> I uh, came into town uh, largely on behalf of the Visit Indie Tourism Bureau and uh, to sort of celebrate my way through their Cheers to Vonnegut uh, program where uh, uh, local cocktail bars have a Vonnegut-inspired or themed cocktail. So I've been uh, trying to hit as many of those bars as possible. Cool. A lot of scotch cocktails out there. A lot of scotch, yep. Yeah, we noticed that we're participating at a couple of our restaurants, and yeah, we did scotch in ours, although we did kind of a scotch tiki, but it was still... uh, Surprise. Scotch tiki. Well, you know, we'd never really put scotch into a tiki drink before, so it was a challenge for us to see what we could pull off. But, yeah, that's a, it's a pretty cool thing. I'm glad that they were able to bring you in for it. I mean, you know, Vonnegut is definitely uh, the native son and very, very highly respected here. Yeah. What did you drink favorites? last night, Ed? <clears throat> what did I drink last night? Jeez. Uh, I had some, uh, I had a tea punch. Again, not surprisingly, but um, with uh, Damozo. So uh, the last couple nights I've had that, it's bottled at 80 proof uh, for here. So, uh, and then I also had some shochu to shake loose the uh, the cobwebs from uh, the previous night, going out and having some drinks with camper. So, um, I drank a uh, go figure bubbles, um, domestic sparkler, Schaffenberger, modestly priced, good stuff, great value. Um, where'd you guys go? Uh, so you went out Saturday night with Camper, and then obviously you were out last night as well, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> you can see as to, the, the gears are turning. Synapses re- firing. Pss, pss, pss. Uh, we went to uh, uh, Plate 99. Plate 99, Plate yeah. Plate 99, and uh, kept walking from there. So we hit um, just a, a dive that's close to Bluebeard. Um, and uh, uh, The dugout. Yes. Yeah. And, that's uh, a great place. And then to Bluebeard, and then came here, and at the end of the night, we were at a place super close to here. Sort of industry. Oh, you went to the Brass, brass Ring. Ring. Brass Ring, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's like the parking lot next door. I had like a massive order of potato skins uh, <laughs> late at night. That's the Brass night. Ring. I, Welcome I was to like, Indiana. Yeah. I woke up in the middle of the night like, ow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's where you go at the end of the night and to hang with industry people and eat junk food and then regret it the next day. Oh, hit the God. spot. Late night grinding. We, um, unfortunately, at a local restaurant here in Indianapolis, Recess has uh, shut their doors and they had their last night on Saturday. And like Eric and I had dinner 
before we went because we couldn't get in because as soon as they announced that they were going out, they were like four weeks booked. But we wanted to stop in and have some wine, say hello, say goodbye, all that kind of stuff. So we ate dinner, went in there, and didn't eat there. But like I walk in there and like everybody is there, like lots of local patrons, uh, trade people. And it was like, hey, what's up? How you doing? Here, here's a glass of 01 Pelouni Marche. Hey, here's 89 Lynch Boss. Hey, here's 90, you know, 1970 Leva Lascasse. Like all this really, really killer wine. It was very generous and great. But we go back to our place afterwards and uh, have a little bit more wine. And then, of course, it's like, pizza time. It's like, son of a bitch. Next day, late night grinding. It's killing me. Yeah, I got to stay away from that stuff. I don't, I'm not a big pizza guy. I eat relatively healthy for as, for as easily as I pack the fat on. <laughs> you know, it's like, not fair, damn it. I'm not going to spend all those hours in the gym. Well, at least like you you're guys. tall, man. Like, imagine if you were me and I'm like 5'8", 200 pounds, dude. <laughs> I don't know how tall are you, Camper. I'm a little under 5'7". Yeah, so, about the same height. <laughs> <laughs> no. When you're under, when you're five foot and under, an inch is a very big deal. <laughs> uh, technically, I tower over Camper. Uh, yeah. So, all right, let's talk about academics, or academics. Yeah, that's say. exactly what I was going to say. Like, uh, I mean, fill people in because... It's a resource that a lot of us in the industry go towards a lot. And and I don't want any of our listeners out there to think that this is a, a website strictly for industry because there's a lot of really cool information out there. And a lot of it's geared towards people at home that don't have the access to some of the equipment that we have in the bars. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, what is what is academics? Well, initially it started sort of as a learn along with me as I learn about a lot more about cocktails. But, you know, a decade or so into that, I've uh, sort of now become the, the teacher. The student has become the teacher. <laughs> and uh, uh, so and the early posts are, uh, you know, it's a, it's a blog at the end of the day. And um, sure. I uh, would do experiments and different drinks and as well as for uh post my writing that was on other sites uh, that I've been writing for for many years and uh, so along the way I found that the content that sort of stuck the most was when I would not just share the results of experiments but share the process of trying to figure something out and um, uh, those have been the most successful and I think useful uh, pieces of content such as when I uh, made simple syrup at different ratios uh, and added alcohol to, to some to see how long it lasts before spoiling because you know, a lot of people at home think that you simple syrup is something you go to the store and buy <laughs> and, right uh, yeah uh, that stuff does seem to last forever but due to preservatives and uh, so at home I just did simple experiment to see how long things lasted relatively and content like that has really stuck around throughout that's the, the years. part of academics that I like uh, quite a lot because you you don't just say, hey, here's this thing that I figured out, and here's how you should do it. It's like, well, I tried this, and it blew up in my face, and then I tried it this way, and that was a total fuck up, and, yeah. and I went this way, and then, like, but here's what I ended up with. But you always, always include the photos of, like, what went wrong, how it went wrong, and how you improved Talk upon it. Talk about the process. Yeah, yeah. it's it's I'm, much more educational that way. Yeah, uh, and I think, you know, it's more fun as well, not like, I am the expert, and I know everything automatically. Uh, it's... Uh, fun to track successes and failures. I mean, I spent nine months working on ice alone before I <laughs> <laughs> made a big discovery there that, uh, that changed the way a lot of people make ice now. So, 
Well, I love the processes and um, the little bit I've been familiar with with the site. Like, uh, obviously, there's an academic background. Like I saw in your bio that you studied physics in, in graduate school, right? And undergrad, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, and I, you know, I just I obviously anyone that knows me knows I'm a geek when it comes to alcohol. So I like the fun. I like I like the application, the practical side. But you had a posting about like how much. 23 year old pappies left over after 23 years and you're basically like tracking the amount of volume left over based on uh evaporation rates and right. I, that is like it was it was quick it was a one pager you know but you had a table in there that showed you know year five year 10 year 23 and provide a little bit of science behind it but not too much to inundate people with you know academia that was really cool it was very simple it was like right on that's my kind of shit thanks yeah i uh i'd, I'd love to do a little book sometime of just like math problems from the liquor world <laughs> we found like how what's the average age of this solera if it's you know and yeah, i would I, I would gladly roll on that book because uh <laughs> yeah. yeah me and math uh, and not so much here as well i mean with the solera thing i mean that's a hot topic always in the rum world and yeah i mean of course the shady uh labeling practices that throw a big 23 right on the label and i mean I, every night we're constantly like Hey, what's that twenty-three-year-old rum? Or like, it's not really twenty-three years old, but <laughs> right? that's that's a longer conversation than we have time for. What would you like to drink? <laughs> um, but that that science background, I think, has put you in a really unique um, position in the industry. Um, you didn't start off that way. I mean, you started off as well. You started off studying physics, but when you left school, how did that kind of like turn into a, a journalism career? We talked a little bit about this the other night because I have a similar background but like flip-flopped i actually have a journalism degree with a minor in biology mm. um i th i thought i was going to spend my life as a science writer or any number of other things but once i went to school that's what i wanted to do but now i just read your science writing and i drink <laughs> <laughs> i do some of that myself well i so i did physics under undergrad and i did worked uh doing some research in the mri department of a psychiatric institution um really so brain scans of schizophrenics for the most part and uh, but most of what I was doing was sort of data analysis uh, at, so I went to grad school for computer science um, for just like a year or two and then stopped doing that because you, you don't really need a graduate degree in computer science once you know how to code you're fine and uh, then I went into what was the first dot-com boom in the late 90s and then in 2001, I was unemployed and started doing bar and club reviews. That was the dot-com bust. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> started doing uh, like nightlife reviews because um, I was super club trash, you know, former raver and all of that. Nice. And, uh, so I would do those <laughs> reviews <laughs> for like for a pittance of money. But eventually I was making all my income through writing. So I was like, okay, I guess I am a writer now. I got through college without taking a single English course. <laughs> yeah, great. That's cool. Uh, but that's evolved even now. So you went from writing. I mean, you write for some major publications still, obviously. Dozens. I mean, yeah, there's academics, but you're also to a doing bunch. What, Esquire and Details. And like I, every time I open up, I, yeah, it's, imbibe, it's different every week. Yeah, Empire <laughs> Magazine, Tasting Table, whatever. It's just like, you know, contributing writer, contributing editor, Camper English. But I mean, now, in addition to the writing, that's evolved into like, you know, you're giving seminars, your talks, your tales of the cocktail. You had what uh, two seminars last year or this year? Uh, coming up, yeah, in 2017, I'll have two seminars. Yeah, two, right? I mean, you're doing judging on top of all the like fun research that you. That you yeah, I'm doing a lot less uh, 
I would say lifestyle uh, reporting. I still do some of that trend pieces, what flavors are happening now and stuff like that. But uh, what I like to focus on is, you know, sort of moving the conversation forward a little, studying uh, harder problems. And uh, sometimes it's just a matter of figuring stuff out that uh, everyone wants to know, but no one has done the work. So right now we're doing a lot of research on uh, safety in, in the bar community, you know, how much um, how much uh, homemade tonic water will poison you and um, things like right. that. So not OSHA approved stuff so much as... Yeah, all the, the homemade ingredients that uh, we love to play with, a lot of it, there's just, uh, there's not a great awareness that some of it is, is either illegal or dangerous or both. Activated um, charcoal. Uh, such as activated charcoal. <laughs> and... Um, uh, and then it's really hard to find the information on like what is a safe level of different substances. And so looking through, you know, government databases online and all of that, trying to figure stuff out. Um, it's been challenging, but that's one of the next big projects. Yeah, I could see that being really, really difficult. I mean, you know, the information either you're getting from the TTB or the FDA or whatever. Right. I think there's disconnect between the people that actually write that material and have an understanding of like how things actually work in the real world in an actual yeah. bar and trying to get a quote from uh, either the TTB or the FDA on the simple question are tobacco infusions illegal um, to use that was to something use. I also saw recently and I was like and oh so dangerous failed at it yeah that's it's in a lot of places um, and uh, it's something it's the number one thing that I like worry about and will you know, I'm that guy who emails the bar being like, hey, you really need to stop. It's not it's not okay to uh, serve people tobacco and, and, and beverage alcohol. Yeah, totally. I mean, it takes very, very minute amounts to put you into cardiac arrest. Are people doing, like, weed infusions and shit, Ed? Uh, yes, they are uh, in certain places, but um, that's a totally different kind of bar. Um, <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's not like you're, gonna, you're not going to go into obvious. a bar in, in Colorado and just happen to see an infused... Uh, rum. I mean, I've had some, uh, um, <laughs> but th th I mean, with academics and like you, you had mentioned it, you're, you're going through this process and you're, you know, trying to reach out to the TTB and you're and trying to get interviewed with these people, but you're with your science background, you know, are you kind of applying your knowledge of that, like that, the scientific, uh, process to, to when you're breaking down what works, what, what your hypothesis is? here's what I think is going to work and, and how sure. it doesn't and why it doesn't. Yeah, a lot of, um, uh, with the dangerous uh, drink ingredients research, that's been more a matter of trying to understand government legalese, which is uh, really challenging because I think really think that it's saying one thing clearly and it's not. Um, and so that's been, uh, that's been a challenge. But just using the scientific method for research in the, in the bar um, experiments has been uh, super useful. I mean, the, it was at Tales of the Cocktail something like eight or nine years ago that I went to my first talk about ice, and uh, the speakers described how to make clear ice uh, through their method of, which I think was something like you uh, freeze it, uh, boil it, freeze it, let it melt, and then freeze it again. And I was like, I don't think that makes sense, yeah. but, but I'm going to test it. And so... Uh, nine months later, I figured out a better way that no. actually works to make. I mean, that's uh, a big part ice. of like a lot of people. I think uh, it's gotten so big now. I think a lot of people don't know that it originated with you because um, it's gotten passed down from person to person to person. But 
I mean, that's probably one of the things that you're most famous for. But I'm with you. Like, I mean, we we read all the same bullshit. And again, like I, I guess I had what 27 credit hours of biology, and that's that's enough to to be able to call bullshit on <laughs> on faux science and. Yeah, it's like boiling the water. Why is that going to make it any clearer? I'm like, you're still going to have like impurities. They're still going to be. If so, you're going to concentrate things. them if there are impurities because you're right because the water the is going to go to steam. Right, <laughs> right. So that didn't make any sense to me either. But I just, I definitely did not dive into that. I mean, I'm not. I never made any attempt to do so. I was just like, oh well, that doesn't work. Okay, forget it. And then you try a few out, and you're like, I guess we just have to deal with cloudy ice. And then all of a sudden, uh, what year was that? The the uh, your directional freezing kind of got published i believe it was seven years ago wow um, that long old. yeah it, it took a long time to catch on um but uh it has now and you know there are hundreds of youtube videos explaining their secret method developed to make clear ice which is just my method <laughs> but uh uh and so that's that's really gone around a lot and you'll hear it credited to different i hear it's a it's an impressive thing to drop to tinder dates <laughs> you know, what? I, I've overheard on more than one occasion people describing the clear ice process to a date that they're on. Do <laughs> uh, you ever just like elbow and be like, "That's me"? That's, that's <laughs> me. Yeah, I'm the one. We should be dating. No, but um, for so, our listeners out there that don't understand uh, like what we're talking about, um, directional freezing something that you can do at home very easily. Um, we do it on a little bit larger scale in the restaurants. But you, you want to kind of give an overview of that process. Sure, I can I can do this pretty quickly these days. Yeah, um, I'm sure. So when a typical ice cube freezes, it goes from the cold point to the less cold point. So it's freezing from the outside in in an ice cube, trapping any air and impurities in the center of the cube. That's where it's uh, the most cloudy, but it's also as it's expanding, it'll then crack um, and make it look even more cloudy. So directional freezing, which is a simple solution that took me uh, nearly a year to figure out is to just control the direction of freezing instead of outside in. Uh, my method is the top down. So if you take an insulated cooler like an igloo picnic cooler, fill it with water and leave the top off. It can be any regular water. Uh, because it's insulated on every side except for the top, it will freeze from the top towards the bottom, pushing any trapped air and impurities towards the, the bottom of the cooler. And therefore, you have a perfectly clear slab of ice until the bottom, like 25% or so of the, uh, of the cooler's worth of ice. Right. So if you freeze it all the way, you just kind of cut off the bottom. And if you, if you pull it out early, you just, you just have, have water to... and impurities in the bottom, and you can just kind of clean up the... The ice. We we utilize that in one of our restaurants because we do a lot of punch. So mm -hmm. we need large format ice, which off, also is not exactly easy to come by. So it works in, in a couple of ways for us. But, I mean, it's insane that it took us this long to figure this out. Although, I guess, well, the the places where you can get the ice sculptors and, like, the ice houses, they're doing it a little bit different, though, That right? They're kind it's of doing, like, a spray or... Uh, well, some of the machines work with with a, a spray, spraying on a cold plate. It's still ultimately directional freezing right. um, uh, that's sort of top-down with a water spray. Uh, the big ice machines that make the blocks uh, for ice sculptures, they are a cold plate on the bottom and an agitator on the top, which is just like an aquarium pump mm -hmm. and then mostly insulated around the sides. So it freezes from the bottom towards the top, and the pump on the top just keeps uh, a crust from forming okay so that it, it goes in one direction from bottom up it's interesting well i mean people don't realize like how much thought goes into ice ice <laughs> yeah. really like you know it's, it's 
he said he spent a considerable amount of time, you know, studying this, the directional freezing. Um, there are a lot of bartenders out there that are happy for it. I mean, like ice is a really big deal. Um, yeah, the difference between a great big clear cube and a drink and a cloudy one, you know, it's large. People say, oh, it, it melts more slowly, which is true, than a, than a cloudy cube. But really, its aesthetic advantage is uh, not to be dismissed at all. And it, it's much bigger effect, the increasing the enjoyment of the drink just for purely aesthetic purposes. I think consumers oftentimes kind of bypass the importance of how something looks. I mean, plates come out of the kitchen with a certain look that the chef has, has you know, taken artistic liberty with. Cocktails should have a certain look. If you're in a cocktail competition, someone just kind of dials in the look of it or the garnish that's, a, that's applied. Meh. Wine. People oftentimes don't look at their wine at all. And colors, whether white or red, every hue is an indication of the nature of that wine, its pH level, potentially where it could have come from, maceration periods. Etc. So sites, it's it's pretty damn important when you're assessing anything you're going to ingest. I mean, we get your hands on a on a perfectly nice clear cube using the directional freezing method that you've kind of d- discovered and and put out there. I mean, it's sexy when you can hold like a like I said, we use it for a lot for punch ice and like when you can hold like a six inch cube that you can see directly through, like it is glass. Yeah, you can re- read it's right through them. So impressive. Uh, read the coaster beneath your your scotch whiskey and yeah. anything. Uh, it's it's yeah, it's really sexy. <laughs> so I mean, you've you've stumbled onto all these really cool things, but uh, I mean, you've been a cocktail writer. You said you were you know in computer science very briefly, but you know studied physics. But I mean, have you ever spent time as a bartender, like behind the bar, working, slinging drinks? Well, I do. I do make several thousand drinks a year. Uh, I'm doing. And lately, I've been doing a lot of events. Several thousand, you count. <laughs> <laughs> well, just they're you're, all. You're doing events, yeah. Yeah, they're right. events. They're orders of like 400 at a time, so gotcha. I know uh, it's easy to estimate. But I've never actually had to bartend while taking money at the same time. So I'm not. I would not call myself a bartender. I'm like a. That's a very important part event. of being a bartender is taking the money. Yeah, I take it all in one big check at the beginning, um, and which is which is okay too. Yeah, no, that's awesome. <laughs> that's the way to do it right there. Uh, I mean, what kind of drinks are you are you into right now? I mean, I know my palate changes. We just had this conversation a little bit earlier um, last night with some of my staff, and you know, our palates change so often. Yeah, you know, and and you and I talked a couple of days ago that you know I'm I'm really into rum and tiki, as any regular listener to the show knows that, and I just feel like that it's. It's coming back around now because serious bartenders are taking those drinks seriously, whereas before it was like, we don't want to put fruity stuff. We want it boozy and stirred and bitter, and that's the only thing that we're going to do. And that's when I kind of stopped doing dealer's choice. You oh. know? <laughs> I was like, because you could almost guarantee you're going to get a riff on a Negroni. Uh, yeah, yep. <laughs> and that's it's still the case everywhere I go. Brown, bittered, and stirred. BBS. <laughs> and, uh, so many bars are doing so many of those drinks. So, you know, I, I think we get a little bit burned out on flavors. Like, um, you know, when St. Germain first hit any market, it was bartender's Bartender ketchup. ketchup. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> in three out of every in 10 drinks on every menu in town is uh, uh, for such a, a spectacular product as, as it was and is. But um, you, then you get burned out on it and, and don't want it for a while. Um, right now, a lot of the super bitter drinks uh, on top of bourbon that are that are stirred um, are just super close variations on one uh, flavor set of flavors and that's a little I'm a little like okay let's bring back juice <laughs> yeah right yeah I love juice 
And I especially love when you start playing with juice. Or you, I mean, we're now in a global economy. I mean, we can get fruits from, you know, Java, which we can lead that into your book here in a minute. <laughs> I, was, I was throwing that out there. I was like, oh, crap. Now I'm really I'm segueing before I need to. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, passion fruit. It's not like, you know, 100 years ago that was floating around in right. the U.S. You know, if you were in New York, you weren't going to get passion fruit juice. So... I mean, you know, so what are you drinking these days? I mean, are you drinking gin and tonics because of the book? I have been uh, amped up. It's hard to write about, I find it's hard to write about something in a very concentrated level without also drinking that thing. So I've, uh, I 100% agree. 100%. <laughs> so I have had a lot of gin and tonics as of late. You know, it's a, it's a drink that also, uh, there's a lot of room I was going to say room for error, but it's really room for success because it's a forgiving uh, cocktail. Yeah. Um, and it works with most gins. And, um, you know, there's only a few tonics that are, are worthy um, in the U.S., but it's, uh, it's, it's hard to go too wrong with those. And I think it's worth the price of, a, a, you know, a dollar plus a bottle of tonic water that we have to pay. Uh, although I wish that was about one third of what it is. Sure. Yeah. That's becoming a large cost. It's, you know, it's funny back in the day and we're pretty close in age. So we, I came up in bullshit bars and where cocktail programs were. If you ordered a three ingredient drink, you were the dick on the other side of the bar. Like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, I have to break out the bitters that haven't been used in four or five years. Right. Uh, but, you know, a lot of gin and tonics, but, you know, tonic was just off the gun. Yep. It was some bullshit like bag in a box syrup. But now there's some there's some really great brands out there. And it's a it's actual like pretty big cost. And that goes into a gin and tonic. Uh, it is. Now. Yeah. So it, it always looks weird to have a gin and tonic on the menu. That's the same price as every other cocktail. Right. Like it's it's actually not the gin that's expensive. <laughs> it's the tonic water. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a shame. Hopefully someone will really say. A more reasonably priced tonic water that's that's of a similar quality, but um, we'll just have to wait for that. Yeah, it's good to drink too if you're traveling to South Florida and you're watching out for the Zika virus. That's true. So we'll get into that when we. I really want to talk about the, the new book, but before we get to there, because so I just heard um, we were talking a little bit earlier, and that you're kind of into the modernist techniques when it comes to cocktails and food and things like that, and that's something that I'm. Also interested in, uh, don't get me wrong, I love a good, simple, well-made cocktail, but I'm fascinated by the science of like anything that came out of Ferran Adria's kitchen or what Alinea is doing or uh, Jose Andres, but when that comes to the under the drink side, I absolutely love Bar Mini in D.C. Mm -hmm. um, they're killing it. In fact, um, some of the guys are here in town, I believe, right now. Yeah, uh, so Josh guy said he was coming tonight. Yep. Yeah, Josh, uh, the chef at Mini Bar, is coming in tonight, I believe, and... Uh, so he's a, he, I, I've met his girlfriend numerous times. She's a big fan of Rook. I know he is as well. I just, I have never met him in person, but we have a ton of mutual friends because I know a lot of, I know, I know a lot of people <laughs> in Think Food Group. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, any thoughts about like doing a book uh, in that vein? Like, you know, kind of what Dave Arnold did with uh, Liquid Intelligence, like kind of putting out, uh, I guess, a compilation of your academic posts? Um, uh, I thought about it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. But a lot of the a lot of the real high tech stuff uh, requires real high tech equipment and all of that. So, you know, I'm not I'm, I'm not on the market for a twenty thousand dollar centrifuge just just right now. But um, <laughs> I would uh, like to use somebody else's uh, and do uh, send checks to academics.com. <laughs> right. Address is available there. And uh, so, yeah, I don't 
think that there's there's a lot of different approaches to molecular mixology uh, and that what's interesting to me right now is the uh, attitude that people take towards it because when you talk to uh, Dave Arnold versus um, uh, Mike Melton and, and the aviary and uh, guy in Boston at Cafe Art Science they all think wildly different things about the cocktails even though they may use some of the same techniques but they're really for different purposes and I, I find that super fascinating. Yeah, I think it is so, as well. Yeah, I, I think it would be fun to do like a, a small book on theoretical molecular mixology. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting some like Anthony Braxton jazz shit right now. It's like we're gonna have to invent a new, invent a new way of writing down language. <laughs> but uh, so I mean, we've talked about all your mad scientist experiments. I mean, you've done the directional ice freezing. You've got done Campari fruit roll-ups, which <laughs> one of my favorite uh, posts. Nice. But you just released. Uh, your new book, and you want to introduce that book that we've got here in my hand? <laughs> sure. It's it's a book called Tonic Water, a.k.a. G&T WTF. And it's a very short book, under 100 pages. Um, basically, I took the long version. I was doing... I, one day I went to look up when was the gin and tonic created, and then three years later, and, you know, 40 books on the history of malaria, I uh, decided maybe I should write a condensed version of all the research that I had done because the uh, history of malaria, the disease, is well documented. But all of those books get up to a certain point and they're like, oh, and then the gin and tonic was created in India. And they just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> like, dates, disease, dates disease, people. Disease, booze. Okay, <laughs> so, uh, well, that's what Arthur was saying because we caught an article. We happened to actually... Within a, what, six-week period, I had been in oh, two of the Zika that. hotspots. I was in Martinique. Uh, and then cruised up to uh, the Miami Rum Fest, uh, what, three and a half weeks later, something like that. And where Wynwood in Miami was actually, they were calling ground zero in Florida <laughs> for the Zika virus. And we were like, shit, we were just there last week. And uh, But there was an article that came out that was like, drinking gin and tonics will actually help you to uh, help prevent you from getting the Zika virus. And uh, we, we were covered. We were covered, <laughs> but we didn't really like dive into it. And then after reading your book, I'm like, oh, okay, well, it makes a hell of a lot of sense now uh, because of the quinine that's in there. And that's the way if you're pronouncing it, how yep. half the people do. And <laughs> I've heard it pronounced the other way. Uh, quinine. Quinine. Yeah. yeah for the, the British way. Exactly. But um, I mean, it's, it's a very well written book. It's, to me, it comes across like long-form journalism. So don't get scared off like, oh, I've got enough books to read. I don't have time to add this to my stack. It's a quick, easy read, and it's it's broken up in, in sections that make a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, different different eras and different topics as we sort of follow along with history. And, you know, it's a... It's, I think it's a bathroom-sized book. You know, each chapter is only yeah, a couple yeah, I pages. wasn't going to go there, but it is. Uh, yeah. Well, I, what I found really fascinating about it was how nobody really knew exactly what the hell uh, quinine was or why this tree bark worked. But even more interesting than that was the fact that, like, they all but disappeared. And everything that we see out there now comes from essentially, what, a pound of seeds? Right, yeah. That was, that was a pretty fascinating story that... Uh, well, it was 1630 when uh, they Columbus <laughs> uh, the uh, cinchona tree bark. Uh, to, they found that that was a a uh, preventative and cure, more or less, for malaria uh, discovered in Peru. But um, and so they would just export the bark to the European superpowers, who would then use it for their colonial purposes. 
but it wasn't until the uh, early 1800s when they decided, oh, maybe they should get some of the seeds and plant those on their uh, colonies with similar weather to Peru so that they could then have their own supply of the market. And uh, so there was a few people went down there and tried to uh, bring the seeds out, but they were protected by the government because they had a monopoly. It was a huge profit center. And uh, but one guy smuggled out about one. Well, he smuggled out, I think it was 20 or 40 pounds of seeds, but he only managed to sell one pound of seeds uh, in London. Uh, and the Dutch bought some of those and planted them, uh, grafted onto their trees that they were trying to grow in Java in Indonesia and then within 50 years became like 97% of the world supply then came from Indonesia rather than from the native Peru and they stopped even bothering uh, with getting the quinine from Peru and Bolivia until World War II when they desperately needed it again but the Germans captured uh, Amsterdam the Dutch uh, processing center for all the quinine in the world and then the Japanese took uh, Java where all the trees were grown and so uh, the the bad guys controlled all of the quinine in the world for a brief period uh, and uh, then they sent people back to South America to try to find more bark from the original source wow. but that guy who sold the one pound of seeds he uh, those were planted in uh, Indonesia and then those were some of the seeds from those trees were given as a gift to an heir who was help ruling the uh, the Belgian Congo and uh, grew a quinine plantation there. And so if we look at today, modern uh, tonic waters, uh, like Schweppes and most of the big companies uh, source theirs from uh, Indonesia still. Uh, Q Tonic gets theirs from Peru and uh, Fever Tree gets theirs from that original Belgian Congo uh, plantation. So really? we can more or less trace every tonic in the world to that one bag of seeds that's crazy i wonder where he hid that bag of seeds when he was smuggling it out that's a full pound that's a full pound who knows (laughs) (laughs) but listeners should know there's a lot that goes into your gin and tonic so don't take your damn tonic for granted we just talked about three four centuries world history all we've talked about is the tonic though so like i mean this was um, this was medicine like no one was really adding gin to it for hundreds of years they would take it with different liquids because, so uh, as we know from the flavor of tonic water, the quinine, which is the active uh, chemical in it that does the, the anti-mosquito uh, reproduction uh, magic that it does, uh, they, where was I going? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but before they started, or when they started adding uh, alcohol uh, yeah. into so it. It's extremely bitter, the bark is. Sure. And, uh, so, Pretty much you'd always take it with some sort of liquid. So it would be uh, washing it down or mixing it with wine, with uh, sweetened lemonade, which they use when they, they only, the Panama Canal only got built because people had uh, quinine. Otherwise, they uh, were, the French failed at it because everyone died. And um, No, I heard that story. When I was down in Panama last year, you know, you had to go through the little, we were at the Miraflores Locks and... Uh, they were, you know, kind of give you like, oh, the French failed because everybody died of malaria and all these terrible things. But, but there, I don't remember at any point 
like quinine or tonic being discussed whatsoever. It's just like, oh, and then the Americans came and we built it. Like, right. Okay. It was a combination of that, and also it wasn't until almost 1900 that they, for the first time, showed definitively that mosquitoes were the cause of malaria. So malaria was known for millennia around the world, but they thought malaria means bad air. They thought it was basically swamp gas uh, gave you and That's Italian, mosquitoes. right? Mal- malaria. Yeah, mal- malaria. Mal- mal- malaria. <laughs> you had to say it with the, no, that's right, Italian. Yeah. Malaria. <laughs> so uh, they, you know, societies going back ages are, have been familiar with malaria, but they totally had the cause wrong the entire time. Some people uh, called it, it was basically like almost like a kissing disease because it was the young couples who would be going out for their perambulations during uh, uh, <laughs> the, the dusk, dusk time. And that's when they would uh, catch malaria because that's when the mosquitoes are the most active, as we all know. Wow. Um, but uh, so people were consuming it with all sorts of beverages, anything they could get their hands on. Uh, the gin and tonic, as we know today, with it, as a carbonated beverage, uh, that uh, came sort of late. I think the first bottled tonic water as we know it today was launched around 1858, I think. Was that Schweppes? It was not Schweppes. It was, there was basically one person before uh, Schweppes. Okay. And uh, there no, that company is not around. Oh, that's right. No, I remember reading about this gentleman. And uh, yeah, but then Schweppes came along and he uh, did a good job and uh, it was, yeah, so obviously still around right. they already had bottled soda water available in India before tonic water was created so we sort of when putting the puzzle pieces into place of when and where uh, the gin and tonic was created we can look at um, you know how long was Schweppes there and that was uh, going back to like 1800 or so we could see it in, in advertisements and we know they needed quinine in India for sure um, Interestingly, you know, the tonic water is from England, uh, the gin is from England, but uh, the drink really comes together in India uh, from all indications and uh, somehow jumps between a a purely medicinal beverage to a recreational one. Uh, I found a quote of someone drinking gin and tonics at a horse race, and uh, that was the first reference, the earliest reference I found was in the 1860s, I think. And... uh, but surely someone had put gin together with quinine <laughs> at sure, some point in the past. To, yeah, no, it's, um, it's, it's a fascinating history. Like I said, I, I blasted through the book pretty quick, and I, I'm, I was wanting for more, more information. I, it, and you're thinking about doing a longer form of, of it, or maybe more focused on gin? Uh, no, actually, I, I really like the malaria history. Yeah, more no. than I like the gin history, which is, I wouldn't say... The, the gin history is better documented at all, but the, um, the malaria history is. But there's a lot of fun avenues that the tonic water history goes down to. First of all, you have another couple hundred years on top of the sure. creation of the, the drink to, um, itself to talk about the falsehoods of malaria and the misunderstandings and all the, the science that ended up creating the color mauve and um, trying to create synthetic malaria and all these uh, funny avenues to go down, and a lot of this information is in the book. Like, which I I encourage you to buy it. It's uh, what like ten dollars off Alchemics? Uh plus shipping. Yeah, plus shipping. Yeah, so I mean, it's worth having. You know, anybody that uh, comes tonight gets a uh, gets a gin and tonic with it. Which so we'll all be protected from mosquitoes this evening. Um, Thank God. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I really, honestly, mosquitoes love me. Like they, I we can walk around. You know, with I can walk around with all my friends, regardless where I am, they won't get bitten at once, and I'll be covered. So I think I'm going to have to start drinking more tonic 
Eat more garlic. Yeah, I'll stick with the gin and tonic. <laughs> <laughs> I eat plenty of garlic as it is. It hasn't done much. <laughs> what uh, What is the event tonight? We've talked about it, but we haven't said what and where it is. Well, uh, tonight here at Thunderbird, where we're recording, uh, I'm giving a talk on basically on the book, uh, some of what we've discussed here. And um, it's doors open at 5 p.m. And... Doing autographs time. and all that, all that yeah, jazz. I suppose if 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 people insist, <laughs> if people insist, like, come on, he's a rock star. I mean, there's a there's a good chunk of the country though that you know uh, doesn't get a chance to to meet you. I mean, we're kind of that secondary market here in Indianapolis. We're not New York, Chicago, or L.A., but or San Francisco for that matter. Um, but you know, uh, you that's kind of the cities where you're often found, if not in another city for a cocktail competition. But we, this is a pretty large country, so I mean, there's. <laughs> It's definitely a book worth getting, and like I said, it just kind of wet my whistle. I wanted to, I wanted to go deeper. Yeah, so, I I would like to expand it for, for pretty much for every chapter. There, there's you know another twenty pages of notes that I have with the you know the source material and the quotes from those and where I found uh, the information and um, there's a lot of more there. But I sort of had to prove the concept that you know it is kind of a fun and interesting history. Uh, and now I just got to convince a publisher that that should be like a 350 page right, history rather yeah. than a, a 100 Well, this is a good way to do it. I mean, you can show some sales numbers. And again, we encourage you to go on and, and buy a copy of that on Optimix. <laughs> well, I think I'll come. I'll bring my 8 by 11 semi-gloss photo of you. you <laughs> yeah. Do a little We've got all your, uh, we, we have your uh, Club Trash uh, promo photos. <laughs> <laughs> so it's starting open doors at 5 and then just kind of runs or yeah i'll probably talk for an hour or less uh till i notice half the room is falling asleep and then it's time to stop (laughs) right (laughs) we just pass out more gin and tonics so if you're listening to this uh this happened two weeks ago um so sorry you missed out on that um or you're in a part of the country where we aren't but i mean are you are you kind of doing a a mini big book tour right now i've been sort of doing it piecemeal city by city uh i've given talks in uh, some other cities and I'm just sort of seeing where I can hook up with the local you know bars and uh, brand sponsors and things like that to get me around so it's uh, you know it's not a books are not a huge way to you know get rich and famous but I um, sure uh, can you know sell 30 50 you get rich and time. famous through directional freezing yes exactly <laughs> yeah. right it's my, it's my gift to the world <laughs> that is your gift to the world we're in the, 200 years somebody's me writing a book about clear ice and they're going to be like it all started with this one guy but we don't really remember him but then there was a big company that took it over right. <laughs> yeah. much like the poor tonic guy Ed you going to be here tonight? Uh, I will be here tonight yeah, absolutely uh, I'm, I need to make sure that I keep the mosquitoes at bay we're having unseasonably warm weather uh, here in the Midwest and uh, yeah so keep those mosquitoes away that might be uh, breeding in the uh, warm waters and Although there is a, you know, global warming is a Chinese conspiracy, so, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't, it's, it's uh, not happening. I mean, February in the Midwest, and we're at 70 degrees today. Yeah, that's that that's common. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, speaking on ridiculous things and uh, <laughs> alternative facts, um, I was curious and wanted to ask you, like, as an active blogger, like, what do you see the trend of, of blogging going towards in the next five, ten years? Because obviously more and more people have been blogging than say five or ten years ago but in the current political state there's been a very peculiar 
world for the media in terms of dilution of various media avenues, alternative facts, other people sourcing information from other online sources. Um, I I don't know. I mean, what do I would have to assume that more and more people are probably going to be putting stock in alternative sources of information, whether it's blogs or or podcasts or, or whatever, just because. Who knows what the hell you can believe when you turn on the news these days? Right. I think, you know, a lot of it depends on the, the type of content that, that's being created. Like, you know, I'm not, uh, other than the ice thing, not changing the world too much with, um, with writing about <laughs> cocktails. So it's less important. It's not a very important. volatile topic. Yeah. If I, uh, if I get a, some facts wrong here and there, you know, probably no one's going to die. But um, uh, so, you know, the, the, the media world right now is just... It's kind of a disaster uh, in that um, not only can anyone publish anything, but uh, as you mentioned, people basically just amalgamate content from other sites, um, promote it as their own, and trying to get a lot of clicks and sell ads around that. And that's just really a race to the bottom, uh, unfortunately. So um, some people have had luck with that being sort of strong independent voices where uh, become authority on their own without a publication behind them. but to try to do that with ad sales is not really sustainable, I don't think, without just cranking out lots and lots of garbage every day. Mm -hmm. So part of the reason that I decided to self-publish this book was to sort of create other ways, uh, other revenue streams. And uh, so, uh, you know, you might come for the information, but maybe leave with a book when you, when you visit my website or click on a, a, a link and buy something on Amazon and then I get the little referral fee there something like that um so the landscape is changing and i'm just i just feel the need to uh always investigate stuff and then share the information so i'm not quitting anytime soon but it's not the website itself is like huge money loser <laughs> rather than <laughs> rather than maker time investment sure. negative yeah but there's such great um, information out there and i mean and it's definitely a go-to for us and in the industry and and i highly encourage those of you that are doing this at home and making cocktails you know educate yourself a little bit because they're fun articles they're not like despite his incredibly uh, incredible background in physics and computer science everything's very well written very easy to read and very easy to understand and doesn't go over your head um but it does kind of teach you the principles of what it, what you're doing why you're doing it and what the outcome is um, which is really what we kind of getting down to the basis of the, you know, uh, scientific method, you know, um, testing those things out. And it's nice to know that in this this world of turbulent information distribution, that uh, you're safe. You know, you're not you're not finding <laughs> dead animals in your mailbox or anything. No, not yet. No, I don't know when big ice comes for me. Then I'll <laughs> <laughs> have to worry about it. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. You just see a couple, Look out for the safety ice, man. They're coming. A couple, couple muscle goons knocking on the door, like, hey, uh we got a problem. We hear you've been making your own ice. <laughs> <laughs> we don't like that. <laughs> awesome. Uh, just the imagery right there that comes yeah, to mind. Just yeah. Open your mailbox and water flows out. And there's like a little note. And like, this used to be ice. Sitting there with an ice pick. <laughs> yeah, right. we got a problem, uh, camper. <laughs> oh, Moffitt-controlled ice, ice racket. You. Yep. Yeah, it's, it, it, that is a humble reminder that, you know, a lot of people love uh, this industry. I love this industry. I love what I do. I'm very grateful. And I, you know, talk with people, either consumers or trade or whatever, and they're like, oh, you got the most awesome job and blah, blah, blah. And this is impressive and that and blah. And it's like, you know what? It's fucking beverage. 
It's, it's, it's yeah, beverage. We're it's not curing cancer here. No, we're absolutely not. We're not saving lives. You know, I mean, as, as a wine and spirits educator, you know, I have a good time and I like to spread knowledge. And I think people are grateful for that. And a lot now, of we're not curing cancer, but we are curing malaria. We are curing <laughs> malaria. One cocktail at a time. And then, of course, you know, heart disease. One glass of wine at a time. Yeah. Well, that's where the hard part comes in. <laughs> One glass. We <laughs> should put some t- uh, stock in, in liver failure, of course. But um, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> now, I'm looking forward to the event tonight. And, I mean, gosh, I mean, what else do you have on the plate? What's, what's, uh, you've been just focused on the... On the tonic for right now, is that your 100% of your time, or have you got some other things, other projects in the works that you haven't quite uh, developed out and posted yet? Yeah, I have some other uh, projects in the in the work. I guess I guess always it's finding the time for all my wonderful ideas that it's it's, it's the real challenge. But uh, I, um, you know, I have. Uh, a lot of research to do for the seminars that were accepted for Tales of the Cocktail in What are those seminars, by the way? Well, I have one on ice, would you believe it? Um, <laughs> sort of modern techniques in ice. And You are the authority on ice? Uh, yeah, I've been to like three other people's seminars on ice. I'm like, you know, maybe it's time that I, you know, yeah. got a chance to stand up there and talk about it. So, uh, yeah, one on ice and the other on bugs and booze. So there will be some overlap with malaria mm-hmm. on mis- mosquitoes. I like it. Bugs and booze. And then uh, I think we'll throw in some phylloxera because um, that made yeah. had large impacts, not just in the wine world and not just in the, the brandy world, but also... You know, Scotch whiskey and Irish whiskey really took off when phylloxera right. uh, hit the, the, the grapes. So um, looking forward to studying those topics over the, over the next few months as well. I hope that I'll be able to. The world's 50 best bars list yes. um, was uh, sold to sort of the parent company of the magazine uh, of Drinks International. Okay. So now it's, I believe the ownership is in, in the same hands of the people who do the uh, world's 50 uh, best restaurants. And for the past like four or so years, I've been the North American polling coordinator. As, yeah, that's as, how I uh, initially met you. Yep. And uh, so I hope that I get to do that again because it's great fun to. Uh, be you know the only person in America who knows who voted for what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. As far as the uh, the bars go that people are picking, and uh, I always look at the list when it comes out, and like I get real excited when I see uh, see my votes up in the top ten. Like, yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, it's. I re- expect free drinks next time I come in, Cannon. <laughs> right. Except for they don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. But uh, no, that's I've I've never made it to the ceremony in London. Me either. Um, I was talking with um, Matt Petrick, cocktailwonk.com, um, the other day about it because the UK Rum Fest almost butts up to it. Yeah. So uh, we're talking and about sharing an Airbnb and maybe just kind of, I, I would, well, presumably, if, if, not presumably, I'm presuming that if I do get the invite back to be on the panel again this year, then I would uh, maybe try to make it over there for that and then uh, just rolling into a big uh yeah a lot of people then also do the uh bar convent berlin uh which is right around the same time and then isn't london cocktail week leading up to 50 best bars so it, you can it, spend a month in, in europe at that point and there's something in russia right before all of that so the brand ambassadors are like stuck in europe for nearly a month yeah but, uh paris rum fest also butts up to the uk rum fest yeah. Yeah, I haven't made it to any of those, but I've been to Bar Convent Berlin uh, several times. Okay, that's that's a great, great event. I've wanted to go for many times. I've not ever been to Germany at all, and it's definitely um, high on the list. 
and I've got a few friends there and connections in the uh, in the Riesling vineyards and one of my favorite varietals to drink. So, if you don't like Riesling, you're an asshole. <laughs> I almost wore my shirt today that says, "If you don't like Riesling, you're a fucking idiot." Mm. <laughs> very true. Very true. That was a Brooks Winery man. They they sent that to us. It's a fantastic shirt, but um. That, that's it's what I've noticed about what you said about a couple of the upcoming projects is that so historically on academics, you have been doing kind of new things that had not been done before and you're researching and you're testing new hypotheses, et cetera, and kind of seeing what your outcome is. But now with this book, I'm seeing a shift. And then what you just said sounds like you're diving into some historical information, which. Yeah, unexpected uh, on my end, too, because that's not been uh Researching history has not been a, f- a favorite activity of mine, and I just went down the rabbit hole of, of tonic water, and uh, but it got me interested. You know, largely the history of disease is fascinating, I think, and so there's a there's a fun connection uh, that's in the book. It takes too long to explain it between uh, syphilis and malaria. Oh, and that's my favorite story. I told you the other day. That's my favorite story in the book. It's insane. <laughs> and uh, uh, so now I'm like, well, now I've got to learn everything about syphilis. Yeah. Um, I mean, in short, they so you if, use one disease to treat another disease if, that they know how to kill. That's so insane. when you are studying gin and tonics, you're drinking lots of gin and tonics. What's your approach to studying syphilis going to be? <laughs> I'm just following a line of logic here. That, <laughs> that was a trap. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take a lot of penicillin, I guess. <laughs> I'll drink a lot of penicillin. You, you drink penicillins. There we go. <laughs> Drop the mic. This has been Shift Drink. See you later, motherfuckers. No, that was... That, he circled it back around on you there, Arthur. Dedicated. He's a pro. Dedicated. He's a pro. Uh, to his point, though, if you... I don't think it's... You can't really get um, a sound and intimate understanding of alcoholic beverage without understanding the history and how it is, what it is, how it is, when it came from. Um, with wine, with spirits, with beer and everything, the, the, the historical uh, importance and relevance of these beverages um, is a undeniable reality. And then the study is fascinating. Oh, it is. I, I, I already have oh, shit. I don't know. 120 books in the stacks at home. You know, every time I buy one, I'm like, ah, it's going to be years before I get to this. That's why I appreciated the kind of like long form journalism, if you want to call it that, or like a, a brief, succinct book, you know, that Camper's written here because I was able to knock it out pretty quick and uh, and garner some real useful knowledge out of it. But I would definitely would read, uh, you know, a full on uh, a publication about, about tonic water and uh, and the diseases that kind of, all tie into malaria and the syphilis, and it, it's and, fascinating. Yeah, it's really the history of the world, 1630 to 1850, uh, because the, uh, the quinine allowed people to um, enter new territories that were previously inaccessible. So it's 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 all the world superpowers involved for a few hundred years there. So it's a it's kind of a big topic, but uh, I huge. got into it. Yeah, hopefully we we'll see a new book uh, about that. Where um, did you find the information um, regarding like sources of quinine by the larger houses? Because when we were talking about that, you had mentioned different large brands and where they're sourcing their right. quinine from. Like, did you was that proprietary information? Did you have to contact them, or did you find I, that elsewhere? I did contact them. I mean, 
I know the Fever Tree guys, and they, they actually went to the plantation uh, in an extremely dangerous uh, part of Africa, and uh, so they have, a, they have a story about that. And I just asked uh, Jordan, who founded Q-Tonic years ago, and Schweppes actually didn't tell me, but uh, it's clear that Java is just a huge quinine plantation, and that must be where it's coming from. We used to talk about, like, oh, that, that stuff has got uh, artificial quinine in it. And, uh, I think it says right on the bottle, you know, contains quinine, uh, which therefore would be the natural source. Uh, so it just makes the most sense. Um, I know that Fentiman's tonic gets theirs from Indonesia, as does a new brand called East Imperial. They have a line of tonics that's from Singapore, but uh, making its way through the U.S. That's, hmm. that's good stuff as well, and they get theirs from Indonesia. So I sort of assume most everybody does. Okay, and I was just curious. I mean, that's... That's the kind of information I find fascinating and kind of hard to find. And yeah, it's you know, when you do luckily I, find I, I know I know a few people. The the Schweppes people, you know, that's owned by different companies in different countries. It turns out, so just trying to find out historical information has uh, not been easy. But they have really they have such uh, wonderful marketing going back uh, to the beginning days. Uh, if I do the great big version of this book, there will be so many ads from like it's in the 1950s, post World War II. Americans didn't drink gin and tonics, and in fact, Charles Baker, the great international drink writer, uh, says, oh, the gin and tonic is a drink that you would serve your guests to impress them um, that you've been overseas. <laughs> it's really? Yeah, it's basically like, well, I haven't had a Singapore sling since I was at the Raffles. You know, it's, it's that, that's <laughs> uh, how he framed it. And, uh, but in the UK, the, the drink had been around for a long time. So they, Schweppes, built a bottling plant in the US and spent a lot of money advertising the, the Britishness of the drink. And it was all like the stately town of Schweppesher and Schweppervescence. And they had their own, <laughs> like, most interesting man in the world type of, of character. And uh, very cool. Uh, they have some really fun ads and stuff that would be fun to uh, do in a big book, as well as. The early, all the other ways that people would consume quinine, they had like cod liver oil with quinine, which just sounds of course. What else super would you delicious. Put it with? Yum. <laughs> so as we wind down here, I mean, I know that you said you're trying to get away from this, doing a little bit, uh, or get get away from doing this so much. But uh, I mean, do you have any? What do you see? You know, going forward, like trends in the bar industry in the next year or so. You think gin and tonic's going to make a make a big comeback? Well, it has been like. Trending super hard in other parts of the world, the Spanish-style gin and tonic, which is served in a large uh, oh, wine yeah. goblet glass. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Huge. Lots of Hendrix over there, too. Yeah. Uh, I've been to many establishments in Spain where you order a gin and tonic, and you said large, and it's just, it's just this massive <laughs> goblet with huge chunks of ice and lots of Hendrix. <laughs> People, uh, the Spanish bartenders that I spoke with, uh, did actually credit the brand for helping to kick off this trend because uh, they're really the first to encourage garnishing with the cucumber to match the flavor right. in the gin. And you know now it's like the Bloody Mary bar competition, like who can put the most stuff uh, on top of their gin and tonic uh, for garnish. But uh, they had been giving some credit to that brand initially. Though I think the whole reason that that trend began was because the ice cubes in Spain are ginormous yeah. hollow cylinders that don't fit in a conventional glass. You can only fit like two or three ice cubes in a glass and you can't fit enough tonic in there to make a good gin and tonic. It barely holds just the gin. So they kept using bigger and bigger glasses and eventually settled on the goblet glass. And then that 
traveled the world because everyone likes a serving ritual. No, absolutely. It's delicious. And go ahead. Sorry. Well, if, if we're getting close to winding down, then it's about that time to ask that question. Um, what's your hangover cure? Hmm. <laughs> well, I do love grease, um, but that's, you know, the hangover is the excuse I need to, to uh, you know, order some eggs and hash browns and, and things like that. So you're just um, rationalizing your, your poor eating habits through a hangover? Exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, I... I don't get them very often. I drink I drink a lot of water, ridiculous amounts of water. Um, and I think uh, one of the signs of a great bar is that water is automatic. It, it comes to you um, before you ask for it. With every cocktail, you, there's, there's a glass of water there. And I always drink them all. Um, and uh, also in the mornings, I'll just stay in bed. <laughs> I make my yes. own schedule, so yeah, additional sleep is uh, one of my favorite. It's also me rationalizing it by having the hangover. No, I think, I mean, well, yeah, the more that you can ignore it, the better. That's for damn sure. Yeah, yeah, making your own schedules, um, oftentimes a good argument to stay in bed. Yeah. So you're, uh, you're pretty active on social media. So I, where can people find you on social media? We can find me on, well, alkademics.com, which is just like academics with an L for alcohol uh, in there, as well as uh, that alkademics is my Twitter handle and Instagram, and uh, uh, there's a Facebook page there as well. Those all link from alkademics.com. I always check out all your stuff on Instagram. You can kind of see your travels around the world and uh, where you are and what kind of cool things are happening. Yeah, I try to do different content in every place. I'm not a, I'm not a fan of like automatically cross posting might call it a huge pet peeve of mine <laughs> yeah i can see that and well you know i think that's one good thing about the instagram uh medium is that you know i mean you can't really post articles and such like there so i mean even us here at shiftdrinkpodcast.com throw out a shameless plug for ourselves but um you know we we typically use our facebook feed for you know reposting articles that are relevant to uh the food and beverage community in the in the country uh, and even internationally um, but on Instagram, you know, all of our all of our sexy photos of our guests and uh, and whatever, wherever we might happen to be drinking, if we're out of town or uh, or even hanging around in town, you know, uh, just places that we support and have a lot of fun with. Um, so, and you can always also check out stream all of our episodes through our website at shiftdrinkpodcast.com. Um, and I think we're social media wise, we're Shift Drink Podcast everywhere except for um, Twitter, which is Shift underscore Drink, which recently. We, uh, it was really useful uh, after our Shochu episode. Uh, we uh, A couple of Shochu guys got in contact with us, and we ended up turning that into a blog post. So if you want to check that out from our previous episode, um, there's some extra additional information out there, which right now, if you can get your hands on Shochu, shochu information, um, get it, because there's not a lot out there. So, and, you know, always, always review us on iTunes if you can... Uh, do that favor for us, you know. If you if you love the show, cool. If you hate it, stop listening. But you can still rate us. Just that easy. <laughs> it is pretty easy. All you got to turn it off. But um, definitely hit up Camper, and, and he's he's traveling around the country now. So, uh, where was the best way for them to track you, like where you might be in a in a particular city? Um, on any of those social media, I'll, I'll make an announcement. Okay. Um, but start with academics.com. Super. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Camper. It's been a lot of fun just, like, hanging out this weekend, drinking, having some uh, beverages and and hangovers and more beverages. And uh, I'm really looking forward to the event tonight as well. Um, 
I know a lot of my staff will be here, and uh, there's going to be some pretty cool people here. So yeah, check out the book, guys. Yeah, it's it's 100 worth it. You can get the Kindle version, I believe. It's yep. what like uh, five bucks, five something bucks. like that. But if you're like me, I highly encourage you to buy the print version. It's it's cool to have and to travel around with. Um, you know, and it's, I don't know. I don't trust the e-media yet. You know, it's something. <laughs> you know, because in 45 years, when all yep. of our Kindles are, you know, ancient technology, I I can still read a book. So, all right, gentlemen. Thank you guys. Thank, Thank you, you so camper. Much. Thank, Thank you. you. And we hope to see you again soon. Cheers. Cheers.